why don't I lead us in prayer as we come to God's precious word. Heavenly Father, we ask you that this day to help us to understand and to trust your word, to lead us to grasp the height and depth of your love towards us in Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, a couple of months ago, uh, my wife drew my attention to a tourist attraction in America called the Winchester Mystery House in San Jose, California. Now, this sprawling mansion was built by one Sarah Winchester, who had married into the uh, fortune of the Winchester Rifle Company. Uh, She had recently been widowed, uh, but was still, you know, earning a lot of money through the wealth that she had been given, and she believed herself to have been haunted uh, by the spirits of those who had been killed by the Winchester rifles. Uh, there had recently been a civil war in America, lots of people had died, those rifles had been used, uh, so she ha- was feeling very guilty about that. Uh, and so, as legend has it, uh, to, in order to appease these ghosts, uh, she began to build a house and build and build and build continuously for 38 years. Uh, she didn't use an architect. Uh, And the house certainly reflects that choice. Uh, It is the housing equivalent of a dog's breakfast. Uh, It is chaotic and wildly impractical. Uh, In it, there are roughly 161 rooms, including 40 bedrooms, two ballrooms, as well as 47 fireplaces, 17 chimneys, two basement levels, and three elevators. It had stairs that lead up into just into walls. There's no door. Uh, There are hidden trap doors, and apparently there is a cellar somewhere that has never been discovered. And when uh, Lady Winchester died, uh, nobody had any idea what to do uh, with this building. Uh, It was entirely worthless, um, and it was deemed uninhabitable. No one knew what to do with it or what to make of it. And I, I guess in a similar way, when we see the church compared to a temple in this passage, it might be a little bit difficult to know What's to make of it? Uh, As you might know, we're going through a series right now exploring uh, the images that the New Testament uses for the church in order to unpack the profound uh, truths that characterize Jesus' followers uh, as a corporate group. You know, this this body, the church. Uh, We've looked at the church um, like a vine, like like a flock. Um, And now we're looking at the church and how it is like a temple. And and it's true that in the Bible uh, and in its usage, uh, the church is is not an institution uh, or a building, ultimately, it is the people. So what is the point of calling the church a temple? Uh, It might be a little bit uh, confusing, a little bit baffling. Uh, Is it just a nice image that Paul uses to show, you know, a building going up, the church is growing? Well, my hope and my prayer is that this morning we would be greatly encouraged, greatly encouraged, that we would marvel at the fact that to be called the temple of God is to have one of the greatest honours bestowed upon us, Uh, and it testifies to the great love shown to us by God. Uh, I really want us to come away knowing that we are a temple, and that is a good thing. That's what I want you to be thinking about when you go home. I'm a temple, and that's great. Uh, Now, In order to uh, unpack this, we actually have to start in the Old Testament. So if you've got your outline there, uh, my first point involves looking at the Old Testament experience and seeing how that is really about getting back to the presence of God. Uh, 
Now, the key idea of a temple is a dwelling place for God. It's a place where God's presence is. Uh, For where God's presence is, there is blessing and there is life. Now, we might say, well, God is everywhere, isn't he? He is God. Yes. Uh, I think the key factor, distinguishing factor that it comes to this uh, of God's presence is fellowship with God, of a relationship with him. And we see that in Genesis, don't we? At the start of the Bible, Adam and Eve, they experience this before the fall, a life of fellowship with God. They walk with him in the garden and they have life and blessing and happiness. Uh, in some ways, this is the forerunner of what the temple is supposed to be. But when Adam and Eve disobey and sin against God, humanity can no longer remain in the presence of God. We have set ourselves against him as his enemies. And the consequence of this and the removal of God's presence comes death. And the rest of the Bible involves, I guess, the experience of trying to get back what was lost. Uh, Maybe you know the pain of trying to salvage a relationship where you have uh, messed up. Well, how much greater and higher the stakes where God is the one who has been offended, where we are at fault. Uh, And as the Tower of Babel incident um, shows, there's, there's no way that we can force our way back into the presence of God. But God, in his great kindness, makes promises to bring humanity back to his presence. You will be my people and I will be your God. This is the great promise that is echoed throughout the Old Testament. God made the great promise that he would one day dwell again with humanity once more. Uh, A key step in this as we go through the sweep of the Old Testament comes uh, at the Exodus where Israel is saved from Egypt and they enter into a covenant relationship uh, with God, a thing called the law. And out of all the nations, God specifically chose Israel to be his covenant people. And he promises them in the law that he will particularly manifest himself by resting on a physical place that he would choose, a place where they could meet him. Uh, It's kind of a meeting place between heaven and earth. Now, this place, it begins with the tabernacle, so the, the the center of the tent of meeting. And then when Israel settles into the land, uh, this place becomes the temple in Jerusalem. And this temple, it is built by Solomon. You might know a little bit about it. It's built by Solomon. Uh, It's called a house for God. Uh, Solomon's temple was a glorious building with a very important function for the nation of Israel. Firstly, it was the place where, um, as I've said, God's presence, where his name would manifest on earth in a special way. Uh, His Holy Spirit, we're told, came to rest on Solomon's temple. Secondly, it would be a place where Israel, where his people could engage with him and worship him. So with things like, you know, the sacrificial system of offering uh, tithes, etc. And so for good reason, Israel, in the Old Testament, we see that Israel's spiritual life really centers uh, on the temple. It is a big deal. Yet... When Solomon, he surveys his glorious temple in the moment of its dedication, uh, he recognized its inadequacy. He says this in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. He says this in verse 18. But will God really dwell on earth with humans? The heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. See, while it is wonderful that Israel had God dwelling among their nation, it became apparent that they still could not approach him because of their sin. There was still that barrier uh, that none of the ceremonial things that they did could make them ultimately clean. They could not restore the good relationship that had been lost. And furthermore, uh, Israel mistakenly believed that the temple uh, was the ultimate 
this temple that Solomon had built was the ultimate final plan uh, that God had made, uh, and it was absolute, and so they took it for granted. Uh, they broke the covenant uh, that they had made with God. They worshipped other gods. They failed to live as God's people. And so God, in his most, I think, terrible sign of judgment, removes his spirit from the temple, and it is destroyed by the Babylonians. And in the face of this disaster, the Jews had to ask some big questions about God. Has God abandoned us? Will he ever dwell with his people again? It's the same kind of questions that we might ask when we find ourselves uh, suffering or going through hardships. Has God abandoned me? Where is he? But again, we see God in his goodness uh, in the prophet's promises to establish a new temple, an ultimate temple that would never be torn down, which the first temple pointed to, a temple that would involve people with cleansed hearts, a restored relationship where uh, God's presence would be forever. And as Jesus says to the Samaritan woman uh, in John 4, he announces that this temple, it's not actually going to be at any place or any location. Uh, people will worship God in spirit and in truth. Uh, Jesus promises and builds a spiritual temple. And he does this, as we'll see, through his death, making it possible for us to once again dwell in the presence of God, to have fellowship with him. Which brings me to my second point of understanding what it means that Christ builds a temple as we see here in this passage in Ephesians. So if you've got your Bible there, as we return to Ephesians, uh, you might know this part in Ephesians, Paul is talking to uh, the Gentile Christians, so these are Christians who are not Jews, and he is talking about uh, where they were and how much God has loved them in his plan of salvation and what he's done in Christ. So if we pick up from verse 11, we, we see this. Therefore, remember that you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at one time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ." See, the Jews, they, they failed to live up to the terms of the covenant. The Gentiles, they weren't even in it, Paul says. They were on the outside looking in. Uh, and the Jerusalem temple had been rebuilt. Uh, and in this new temple, there was actually a reminder of how excluded uh, the Gentiles were. Uh, there was a little section of the temple that they could go to, and that was it, the court of the Gentiles. If they went any further in, they were risking uh, death. They, they would be killed. Um, if they went any further in. And so from you know, circumcision, which Jews were and Gentiles weren't, to this temple wall, there were these physical reminders that they were not part uh, of the people of God or of his promises. Now, such signs are powerful, aren't they? Uh, you might think of the, um, the Berlin Wall. Uh, if, you, if you remember that, which separated um, the, you know, the communism from liberal democracy uh, in Germany, and it was more than just a war, it was a sign of a people that were divided. And when that war was, you know, knocked over, uh, it signified again the coming together um, of the nation of Germany. Well, Paul describes the situation of the Gentiles before Christ as being one without hope, and without God in the world. Uh, I remember when I was a teenager, before I was a Christian, uh, there were occasionally moments of... Um, you would call them dread, that would come over me. And I think, well, what am I doing here? Like one day, you know, no matter what I do, one day I'm going to die and all that I've done has come to nothing. Like, what is the point of this? 
Uh, I think I was maybe channeling a bit of the hopelessness there. But like being lost in a dark cave and having no light source and no way to get out. Um, uh, Paul was saying the Gentiles um, had had no hope. There was no way to reach God by themselves. But he then points to that great and wonderful truth that in Christ and what he has done, all people can be included in the people of God and the promise of salvation, whether Jews or Gentiles. Uh, Verse 13. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. And we can go through here and think about all these dimensions of peace, that's a key theme here, the peace that Christ brings. First, we see that we were once alienated but now reconciled to God by Christ's blood. This is the vertical dimension of peace. Uh, I imagine maybe one of the most painful experiences one could have would be to be cast out um, of your home and to be alienated from your family. Well, how much more would it be terrible to be, is it to, is it to be alienated from, you know, the, the living God? But Christ, by his precious blood shed on the cross for us, pays for our sins, it cleanses us of our guilt, and means that we can once again have fellowship with him. We can once again be fit to be in his presence. There's that peace. Uh, There was once a fact that we were once divided, but now we are now united to one another in Christ. Uh, There is this horizontal dimension of peace. Christ fulfills by his cross the law. Uh, and what the ceremonial signs, these physical signs of the law pointed to, the sacrifices, the temple, they're done away with. Not because they were always useless, but because what they had symbolized had come to pass. Uh, They're effectively the gift voucher that has been cashed. They're no longer needed. So even though the temple still stood at that time, uh, it didn't actually matter. In fulfilling and abolishing the signs of the law, Christ breaks down that wall of separation between the Jews and the Gentiles. They can come together in this new shared humanity that the Christ has created. Um, No one is higher than the other. They are all equal in him. And I guess in a world divided by tribalism of all sorts, of ethnicity, of nationality, of politics, of class, uh, I think it's important for us to remember the the powerful peace and the unity uh, that we we have in Christ and that we should be striving to achieve. Uh, it's not that we can never talk about um, the differences that we have as humans uh, or the issues they present. I mean, for instance, racism uh, in the church, that is such a great evil because it in fact denies the equality that all people have in Christ. Uh, but God's people, whatever our background, uh, whatever that is, we are to ultimately be seeking to pursue peace and unity in Christ wherever we may find it. Now, The third thing is that we were excluded, but now given access to God by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, In verse 18, we see that. If we remember that the sign of God's presence in the temple, uh, of him dwelling there, what marked the temple out as being that place, was the fact that his Holy Spirit dwelt there. Well, now people no longer had to go to the temple uh, to, to have God's Spirit. 
uh, but it had come to dwell in every Christian. That is the great news of Pentecost, that God's Holy Spirit is poured out onto anyone who believes in Christ. So if you believe in Christ, God dwells in you by his Spirit. That is, that is an amazing, remarkable thing. And to have this Spirit uh, is to have access to God, we're told. Uh, it's almost to have like a permanent hotline to God. Uh, every Christian can say God is with us as his Spirit dwells in us. And it means that our prayers, uh, you know, by the Spirit, through Christ, reaches God and he answers prayers. And sometimes I forget how great and wonderful a thing this is. Um, because if we realize we have this kind of access to God, why, why wouldn't we pray? Why wouldn't we seek um, to ask uh, God and give thanks to him? And uh, that's, that, that's a part, a key part of fellowship. And we have that access by his spirit. And so bringing this together, uh, I think a key takeaway is to not take what Christ has done for us for granted. Uh, our peace with God and to each other uh, was hard won and not by us or anything that we've done. Uh, how perilous our state is before Christ before we have Christ. Uh, but how great is his mercy towards us? That is something to be very thankful for. Um, not just when we become Christians, but um, as long as we continue uh, in the faith. Uh, my final point is that we, we look at the church and what that means as the new temple. Through this gospel, this proclamation of what Jesus has done, we find the people forgiven, sanctified, united to his son and to one another, and that is how God builds a new temple. Uh, verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. See, God's plan was always to make the church his temple. The body of believers known as the church becomes the place where God dwells and where his presence is known because we have fellowship with him. Uh, the temple, the Old Testament temple, that was never the ultimate goal. It was always in the church. And as we see in verse 22, um, we actually see that uh, Paul reminds us of, of that we in this room uh, are that local expression of this great and glorious building project that Christ is doing. We've got, we've got the factory project over there. That's, that's nothing compared to this. This is much better. Uh, and Paul lays out the salvation blueprint uh, in verse 21. In Christ, all people, people all over the world have been drawn to faith in him and can be a part of this spiritual building. It's almost like... Um, the temple, instead of people coming into it, the temple almost goes out and, and starts to build and, and goes to cover the earth as the gospel goes out. And when Paul says that the apostles and the prophets, they're the foundation, what he is saying is that the preaching of the gospel, the message that they have spoken, is the way that the temple is supposed to be built. And to try and build a community in any other way, uh, you might have a lot in common, you might have a lot of fun together, uh, but you are not the church. It's only on the gospel as having that as our foundation. And we see that Christ here in this building, this great building, is the cornerstone. Uh, at the time, you, the cornerstone was important. Uh, it was kind of the key stone laid first for the foundation of the building. Uh, and it was this stone which you'd build from and it gave the building its stability and shape. 
Uh, if you had a good corner, well, if you had a cornerstone that was rubbish and wonky, uh, you're going to end up with a rubbish and wonky building. Uh, the Winchester House probably should have had a good cornerstone, but there you go. Uh, but this church, we're built on Christ as our cornerstone, this spiritual temple. Where we're supported by Him, and it's centered, and it's shaped, and what it looks like is determined by Him. So when we look for churches, uh, whether we, ones we go to or ones we recommend to other people, uh, it's important that we look for ones that are Bible-based and centered on Jesus. I mean, because if you have the Bible, but it's not centered on Jesus, then you've missed the whole point um, of what the Bible's about. Uh, if you say you have Jesus, but you don't have, uh, you know, it's not centered on, you know, not ba- based on the Bible, then you have what is in fact, you know, a false Jesus and an idol. You need to have both. So you need to be biblically based and centered on Christ. Uh, and that goes for any church, um, no matter what name or label they wear, that's what they need to have. And we see that there in, in this building, uh, there's a sense of a unity, isn't there? Um, as we're all living stones, the stones are people in this temple. And we have a unity with every other person who has believed in Christ in history all over the world. Uh, and denominational differences, while important, um, often pretty reasonably important, uh, they actually ultimately can't remove uh, the unity that we have in Christ. And I think it's important to remember that, uh, to look outside, just outside of our own little body, but, you know, in Springwood we, we see our, our Baptist brothers and sisters, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, we, you know, we move f- further out, um, we see the, the Christians throughout Australia and even all over the world. Um, it's important to remember them and to be praying for them, um, no matter whether they're here sitting next to you uh, or uh, believers in, you know, deepest, darkest Peru. Um, one way I like to to do this and to remember this is to, um, I go to a thing called Operation World and it gives me just points for prayer for different Christians in different countries. I find that a really helpful thing, so maybe you'll find that helpful too. Furthermore, what we see is that to be the temple is a privilege for the church. It is a great privilege because it is where God has chosen to bring salvation so that we have fellowship with him, that he blesses us, that he responds to our prayers and he calls us to holiness. Uh, I've seen many beautiful churches. Uh, as a kid, my parents kind of took me around Europe and uh, I, I didn't really appreciate it at the time. I felt like you kind of saw one big stone building, you saw them all. Uh, but that being said, uh, no matter how beautiful or culturally significant, you know, the pile of stones is, whether it's you know, Notre Dame or St. Andrew's Cathedral or Christ Church up the road, You people sitting here, you are the most precious and valuable thing to God. And it may be that you often don't necessarily feel like you are uh, valued, uh, perhaps by other people. So uh, if maybe if that is you, I hope that you, and you know that you trust in Christ, I hope you would see that God really does care for you. He really does value you. And in fact, so much so that he sent his son to make you uh, one of the stones in his living temple. And I think that says something about the way that we treat one another as well. Uh, Because if we see the way that God sees us, then we'll treat each other uh, accordingly, I hope. You know, if you recognize the value of something, uh, hopefully you treat it accordingly. You know, you don't play frisbee um, with a bunch of fine china plates. Well, you shouldn't. uh, Because they should be, you know, valued. And so I think, you know, valuing the gathering of God's people together... um, Every Sunday, I think that, that is the minimum. That's a good and wonderful thing. That's the minimum. I think it actually, it involves being 
uh, invested in each other, in caring for each other, in how we are going? Are we, is the person, you know, on the other side of the room? Are they, are they growing and flourishing in their faith? Are they going through a hard time? Um, obviously, you can't get to know everyone, uh, but it's important that we are looking out um, always to other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And not only is it a privilege, we have this great assurance in being the temple. Uh, my 20-month-old daughter is something um, of a, a needy sleeper, I call it. Uh, she can only fall asleep if one of us there is lying down next to her uh, until she nods off. Uh, and if she wakes up and we're not there, uh, you better believe that she's going to let us know that she is unhappy about this. But to think about it from her point of view, I think that's actually a pretty reasonable thing as a little person, you know, to not be in our presence is dawning. It's a scary thing. Uh, and to be in our presence, it's a wonderful and good thing. And that is how much more so when we are in the presence of God. Because that means we are his people and he is our God. We have this promise that he will, he will not leave us. He will not forsake us. Uh, we're not a candle in the temple that you can just, you know, pick up and take out. We're actually part of the stone itself, chosen and loved by him. Uh, and I guess finally there is a calling, isn't there, uh, which comes from being a temple. Because what does a temple do? What's its function? Well, it's a place of worship. It's a place where God is truly known, where he is truly loved, where he is truly called upon and obeyed. And God saved us to be his worshippers, uh, which we're doing that here together as his people. Um, but it goes beyond that. We are holy living stones uh, in all areas of life. Uh, we're to be seeking to live for him um, in, every, in every corner uh, and in every time uh, during our week. And so I guess if the church is the temple, it somehow in some sense functions as the meeting point between heaven and earth. Um, it's important that we live as God's holy people because it's a place where those who are outside can see the glory of God. They can see Christ preached and they can come and uh, have faith in him and repent and then join uh, the building. So to bring all of this together uh, and in close, uh, Psalm 93 says this, it says, thy testimonies have been verified, the beauty and holiness of thy temple shall endure forever. The words of this psalm find their truth in the church. Uh, to be called the temple of God is not a meaningless image, it is to realize we've received the greatest privilege from him. We have been so deeply loved by Christ, that he would dwell with us, that he would give us fellowship with God. We see how greatly um, we have been unified by his death, the wonderful access that we have by his spirit, that we might, as a people, uh, both as individuals and, and corporately, um, be a people who live for him and worship him uh, in all that we do. So I wonder, have you acknowledged the wonderful privilege and the responsibility and calling that God has called you to as one of the stones in his temple? Uh, I think it'd be good for us to think about that both as, as I've said, as individuals and, and also in how we do that together. Um, so I'm going to pray now uh, that God would uh, help us uh, in this endeavor, both to remember what he has done for us uh, and to respond to that. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you that while we were far from you and your precious promises, you drew near to us in Christ. Thank you that through him we can have peace with you, that we can be forgiven and know uh, you as our God. We thank you that you can break down even the greatest barriers as you did with the Jews and Gentiles. 
Please help us to cherish that peace that you have won for us, the access you have given us, and the mighty power by which you build us into a holy temple for your glory. We ask that you might, uh, that this might be a place uh, in your people where you are known, where you are loved, and where you are worshipped in spirit and truth. We ask that you would help us this week uh, and evermore to go out to live holy lives for you and for the sake of your Son. We will pray all this in his name. Amen.